Good afternoon. Um, I'm an accelerator physicist at uh, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. And what I'd like to talk about today is not my current work, but it's what I did as a grad student and a postdoc. And I need to say that the views presented here are not those of Stanford or the US Department of Energy, but they're my own. What I want to talk about today is radiocarbon dating. And we want to touch on what it is, how well does it work, and what's it good for. Um, and this ties in with one of the themes of the conference, which is using science to in service to God and God's world and to our fellow man. Uh, this is a, an applied science topic. It's used in all sorts of areas of science today. I should also mention that the ASA in the past has been, various ASA members have been very involved in radiocarbon dating. Uh, Larry Culp, who was one of the early active ASA members, was very involved in radiocarbon dating in geological context. And Edwin Olson was also very involved, and he did some uh, fundamental work on looking at radiocarbon dates of various types of materials, how reliable they are, and some of that work is still being referenced today. Radiocarbon uh, was discovered, or radiocarbon dating method was discovered by Willard Libby in the late 1940s, and he received the Nobel Prize for that in 1960. And as the prize states, it was for his method to use carbon-14 for age determinations in archaeology, geology, geophysics, and other sciences. Uh, climatology is one area that's come on board recently that wouldn't have been on the radar screen back then. But radiocarbon is used in all of these areas. How does it work? Um, there's three natural isotopes of carbon. Carbon-12 is the normal carbon that we all think of, six protons and six neutrons. Carbon-13 is a stable isotope, has one extra neutron, and it accounts for about 1% of natural carbon. And then carbon-14 has an extra neutron, and it becomes unstable. And it accounts for about 10 to the minus 12th of modern carbon. Um, the decay process is to nitrogen 14 by beta decay, which is electron emission. So a, a, a neutron in the radiocarbon turns into a proton plus an electron. The electron is ejected. And also an electron antineutrino. Carbon 14 decay. Uh, it's a random process. We heard some mention of radioactive decay earlier. It's a random process with a probability of decay that's a fixed constant, independent of time and environment and anything else we can think of. And it should be just a function of the nucleus itself. It's a, it's a fundamental, um, the decay is just a fundamental property of the stability of the nucleus. And as long as the nucleus is unchanged, the decay rate, the decay probability should be unchanged. This is the probability for a single carbon-14 nucleus to decay. If you take a large number of 
them and put them together in an ensemble, you have a, a certain decay rate of the atoms in your collection. And if that's integrated, it gives the familiar exponential decay curve, um, e to the minus lambda t. And some people, some think this is sort of mysterious. Why is it exactly exponential? Why would it not be some other slight variation? Well, that all goes back to being a, a constant probability of decay. If this is going to be a different decay curve, that implies that the decay is not constant. And everything we know about radiocarbon and about beta decay is that it is constant. Uh, the tests say that. The theory says that. So the um, decay is often expressed as the half-life. What's the time that it takes for half of the atoms to decay in an ensemble? And that's around 5,730 years. There's two values that are used. 5730 is the more accurate value, but 5568 years was the value used by Libby. And that is still used for historical reasons. Um, and then corrections are made to get uh, correct numbers from that. Carbon-14 production. Um, it's produced in the upper atmosphere. It's a cosmogenic um, isotope, which means it's produced by cosmic rays. The cosmic rays hit um, nuclei in the upper atmosphere and break them up, releasing neutrons. And these low-energy neutrons, um, eventually some of them hit, uh, hit nitrogen-14, and they're absorbed in what's called an NP reaction. Neutron comes into the nitrogen-14, turns it into carbon-14 um, plus a proton. And uh, this accounts for about 99% of the carbon-14 production. A little bit of it comes from some other things, um, from uh, N-alpha reactions on oxygen-17 and, and from some other things. But almost all of it in the atmosphere is due to... Um, spallation products on nitrogen-14. And the atmosphere having a lot of CO2 and then the oceans having a lot of uh, carbon storage, all of that buffers um, any slight variations you have in production. So the atmospheric level of radiocarbon stays fairly constant with time. And the, the first assumption that was done by Libby was to assume the atmospheric level is always constant. And you can get pretty good dates by just assuming that with no other corrections. Uh, this diagram comes from a book by Irv Taylor. And I don't know if any of you know his name. He's uh, one of the leading guys in archaeological research of radiocarbon. And he's an interesting fellow. He was raised Seventh-day Adventist and then went off and got into this field and uh, was somewhat ostracized from his circles. Uh, the principle of radiocarbon dating, as I mentioned, um, we, we assume that we have a, a constant ratio of radiocarbon in the atmosphere. Anything living will have that same ratio because it's in equilibrium with the atmosphere through its food sources, um, which ultimately come down to plants, which get their carbon from the atmosphere. And then... All we do is measure the current radiocarbon content 
in an organism. Um, and by comparing that to the modern atmospheric content, we can get how long it was until the organism died and went out of equilibrium with the atmosphere. So this is generally expressed um, as a radiocarbon age in years BP, which is before present. But then you have to define present. So the, the definition of present or modern, if you're talking about percent modern carbon or fraction modern, it's defined as the level in 1950. Um, based on, and this is based on a, uh, an NBS or a NIST standard of oxalic acid. Um, and there's other secondary standards. So um, the reason it's done, it has to be done with a fixed date because otherwise if you publish, you'd have to, to figure out when, what, uh, how many years old the thing was. You'd have to take into account when the guy published his article. So you want to use a fixed date so that you can say so many BP and um, have a number that's reliable. There are some corrections that need to be done for radiocarbon. One of them is mass fractionation. <clears throat> um, different, well, radiocarbon is heavier than carbon-12. 14 is heavier than 12. And certain processes like diffusion will preferentially uh, take one over the other. And so you can get certain biological processes that will enrich or change the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 and make it different from what it normally would be. Um, that has to be taken into account. And here are some, uh, and, and that's taken into account by using the carbon-13. So it's a very nice system that we have that there is this other stable isotope, and we can use it to measure how much fractionation occurs and then we can extrapolate that to the carbon-14 and make a correction. So uh, in air, CO2 um, has a, a carbon-13 um, fraction, fractionation of about 8 per mil, this parts per thousand. And in trees, it's about uh, 28 per mil, negative 28 per mil. So those things have to be corrected, and that's part of the definition of BP before present. Um, and then there was a, a second big revolution in radiocarbon. The first revolution was, was Libby's discovery of the whole technique. <clears throat> and then the second revolution, according to Irv Taylor, is the the whole idea of calibration, uh, the ability to calibrate these dates. And so we use tree rings or lake varves, and you get annual layers in both of these. You count the layers, and now you've got an independent measurement of how old the thing is. And then you go and date the tree rings themselves through radiocarbon, or you date uh, carbon inclusions that are in the lake varves and now we get a calibrated date. Um, so this corrects for any small variations that were in the atmosphere. So this is a, a picture of the tree rings. Um, typically, it's a bristlecone pine from uh, California or European oak 
from either Ireland or um, Germany that is used. The oldest living tree is about 4,600 years old, which is in the White Mountains of California. Uh, but this range has been stretched by using fossil tree trunks and matching the uh, tree rings. What's done is, is you find years that had un, um, unusually wide or unusually narrow bands, and you can match those up with fossil trunks and step the, uh, the record back. And so the, now the tree ring record goes back about 12,400 years. And this has been cross-compared. This is a, a shot of a uh, calibration curve. This is the uncalibrated date on the left, the, the date in BP years. And this is the calibrated date on the bottom. And you can see there are some ripples because the atmospheric concentration is not absolutely constant. But you also see this plot has, uh, has four different sets of data on it from four different laboratories using two different tree ring records. And they agree quite well. So you can see that um, we have very good agreement. If somebody is miscounting these tree rings, um, they're doing it the same on different tree ring records. So it's, we can be fairly confident, I believe, that these tree ring records are correct. Um, also, you notice that the correction is around 15% back here at the oldest date, about uh, 4,000 BC. We have about a 15% correction. So uh, some of the critics want to say that these, these tree rings can have multiple rings per year, and so these numbers are all completely off. Well, you've got to postulate then that not only do you have multiple tree rings per year? You also have something changing the decay rate at about the same rate synchronized with it so that the only error you have is about 15%. And that becomes very hard to believe. So I would say the accuracy of tree ring calibrated dates is quite good. This is an example of a calibration curve and how it's actually used. <clears throat> And it makes some, some strange effects um, in the dates that you get. Here's the raw date coming out of the measurement, uh, taking an example of a 1,000-year BP. When that's calibrated with the calibration curve, one gets a non-Gaussian result with multiple peaks. And so typically, this is how it's reported. They, they show the, the plot of the multiple peaks, and they give multiple confidence level intervals. So at 68% confidence, it's this date. At a 95% confidence level, it's these dates. So it makes it a little bit um, tricky to deal with the calibrated data. <clears throat> but we've extended the calibration even further uh, these are pictures of lake varves from Lake Sujetsu in Japan. And in Lake Sujetsu, the, uh, there's diatom growth in the spring that causes light layers. The rest of the time, you have dark layers in the lake varves. And these are counted just like the tree rings are. And then carbon inclusions, little pieces of, of leaf or other 
carbon inclusions are found in there and they're dated. Um, other lakes also show similar things. In Scandinavia, there's differences, seasonal differences in the, uh, the silt that's deposited. Now with the records from Lake Sujetsu, we can extend the tree ring record back to 45,000 years. So the Lake Varv record um, goes back here, and this shows how it matches up with the tree rings. Um, what they did with the Lake Varvs is they, they didn't count all the way back from the present. They started at about 9,000 years ago, um, and then they take the little the ripples in the calibration of the Lake Varvs, match them up with the ripples in the tree ring record, and you can see that the match here again is quite good. Uh, the ripples reproduce themselves pretty well. And so we have a calibration now going back about 45,000 years. And again, I think it's fairly accurate. There are some differences with um, some recent speleothem dates. And uh, so there might be some modifications to this curve in the future, but I don't think they're going to be radical. Um, some recent anomalies in radiocarbon. From about 1900 on to about 1950, the level was actually below the norm. Um, the radiocarbon level in the atmosphere was, was uh, less than steady state, and that's called the Seuss effect. It's because of fossil fuel usage diluting the atmospheric radiocarbon, and that changed the, the ratio by about 3% or so. And then in around 1960, the level in the atmosphere doubled because of atmospheric nuclear testing. Um, and so now, since 1960, the, the level has been dropping quite rapidly. And we wouldn't want to do this test of the atmospheric nuclear testing to see what it did. But now that it's been done, um, dates since 1960 can be done at, at extremely high accuracy. You can get one or two year accuracy on radiocarbon dates. If you know something happened after 1960 and you're on the downslope of this curve, you can get extremely accurate radiocarbon dates. Now the next radiocarbon revolution is uh, accelerator mass spectrometry. And Irv calls this a third radiocarbon revolution. Um, it was invented by Rich Muller in 1976. And the idea is to use a particle accelerator as a mass spectrometer to count the radiocarbon atoms rather than waiting for them to decay and counting the beta particles that come off. What this does is it allows using about a thousand times less material than Libby's method. We need about a milligram of carbon or even less um, versus about a gram of carbon for Libby's method. And in addition to that, it's about a thousand times faster so this, this made a lot of things possible that were not possible before. Uh, why do we need an accelerator? It's because the abundance of radiocarbon is so low. This shows a mass scan um, normalized to carbon-12 abundance. And so this is what would come out of an ion source in one of these accelerators, or it would come out of an ion source in a mass spectrometer if you wanted to use that. Um, so you get a lot of mass 13 and mass 14 molecular ions. Your mass 14 for modern carbon is 12 orders of magnitude down. 
And we really want to go down about three orders of magnitude below that for old samples. So you're down 10 to the minus 15th. You've got to eliminate all these other um, species to the 10 to the minus 15th level. And it's just not possible to do that with a mass spectrometer. So what's used are nuclear physics techniques. Um, I want to briefly mention the sample preparation. Um, there's some chemical, mechanical and chemical pretreatment. And then the sample has to be converted to CO2. And then that CO2 is reduced to graphite. The graphite is then put into a sample holder and that's put into the accelerator. Um, this is an example of how the, the sample is converted to graphite. Um, I won't go through all the details, but um, I've, I can give you the references later. Uh, basically, the, um, it, it's done in a sealed tube with a heater and a cold trap on the other side. And the, um, the CO2 and hydrogen in the presence of a catalyst uh, converts to graphite and water. And this is a, a picture of some of the graphitization lines at the University of Arizona. It's a bunch of um, glassware and stainless steel tubing. This is a uh, diagram of one of the particle accelerators that's used. Um, this was our accelerator at Livermore. The sample is put into an ion source. That's run through the accelerator and you have to go through a magnetic band and, a, and some sort of electric um, separation uh, to get into the, um, to separate out all of the interfering species. Here is a photo of our accelerator at Livermore. So this is a, this is an old nuclear physics accelerator. Many universities have these. This is called an FN tandem. There's one at Purdue. There's a number of universities have the same machine. And these were sort of recommissioned to use as radiocarbon dating machines uh, when this AMS technique started. Nowadays, there's also some special purpose uh, accelerators that are smaller that are being used. So this is um, the one in University of Toronto. Um, contamination and background are issues. Um, there, basically, there's uh, samples can be contaminated in situ. Um, there's not much you can do about that in the lab. There's a, a background that you get from processing, a background from the instrument itself. But all of these can be characterized and corrected for by processing blanks in parallel with your unknown. If you know the blank has no radiocarbon, it can be used as a process blank to subtract out the background levels. Uh, what got me looking into this again and recently was the, um, the rate project from Institute for Creation Research. They had claimed uh, a lot of problems with this technique and said that radiocarbon doesn't work. Um, that basically they, they said that, that what people are seeing and calling contamination background are really intrinsic radiocarbon left over from the creation. Um, and there's a number of problems with that. I've written up a detailed 
um, analysis of their claims and what the problems are, which is on the ASA website. And I also have some copies here if anybody wants it. Uh, but I don't have time to go through the details right now. Um, I want to just briefly mention some of the modern capabilities and some of the things that can be done with radiocarbon. As I mentioned, sample size is about a milligram. Um, the dates, you can go back 12,000 years with tree rings. You can go back as much as 75,000 years with some, some uh, isotopic enrichment techniques. And uh, you can get about a plus or minus 20-year error on your uncalibrated date. Number of applications for radiocarbon. Archaeology is the main one, uh, the, or the first one, but now some of these other applications have become important. The Dead Sea Scrolls, um, these were dated in 92, and uh, the radiocarbon dates are the blue lines, the paleographic dates based on handwriting, or, or sorry, uh, you know, letter styles are the red boxes. And there's quite good agreement. The radiocarbon dates tend to be slightly older, but that could be real because um, some of these things were reused. Some of them were, uh, the, the material was made before the, um, the writing. The Shroud of Turin was a, a famous thing that was dated. Three different laboratories dated three different samples, got very consistent numbers. Um, with an age of 1260 to 1390 AD after calibration. And uh, a lot of people don't like this because they want to believe this really was the Shroud of, of Jesus. Um, about the only way to argue against this date is to say that the samples they measured were not from the real Shroud, but were from repairs made to the Shroud. Um, I don't think that's true. I think they were very careful in selecting their samples. Uh, geoscience, there's a lot of um, applications. This is um, ocean circulation. As we saw yesterday from Keith Miller, um, the ocean waters have been dated by radiocarbon at three kilometers and at zero kilometers. And you look at the difference, you can see the resonance time in the ocean and deduce the ocean circulation. Um, climatology, a lot of things have been done. Carbon cycle research is, is a big field right now. And in bioscience, uh, there's a number of things that have been done. Um, a lot of new things are possible in bioscience that weren't possible before because of the sample size. So in summary, radiocarbon has been calibrated about 45,000 years with the lake varves. Um, this new technique of AMS allows very small samples and there's lots of interesting applications that can be done with it. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. I'll try to be quick here. What was his question? 
Yeah, the question is, what, what is it about the accelerator that allows the better discrimination? Um, first of all, this is a, a tandem accelerator. Uh, negative ions are injected into the machine. They are stripped at a terminal in the center of the accelerator. Um, so you, you go in with carbon minus one. You strip it to carbon plus three, typically. And that stripping process kills all of the molecular ions. They don't survive it. So what comes out are just atomic species. And then those atomic species are bent through a couple of stages of um, mass selection, and then a stage of energy selection or velocity selection. And then, so that gets rid of most of the other stuff. And then the final step of separation is the detector itself which uses nuclear physics techniques of, of energy loss in a gas counter cell. So this is a gas-filled detector, typically. And as the species go in, they lose energy proportional to Z. Their, their range is proportional to Z. And so um, that's what helps give the discrimination.